Haggai chapter number one. There's only two chapters in the little prophecy of Haggai, so you ought to be able to find it pretty quick. Amen. Of course, uh, I'm confident that each and every one, if there was a hundred chapters, each and every one of you could find it, no doubt. You might have to take your shoes off uh, to find it, but I believe that you can. You okay tonight? Linda thought that was funny. Everybody else just sat there real quiet. Amen. And yeah, there you go. Old Oliver Green would say in your old Schofield Bible, turn to page number. I don't even know what page number it is in my old Schofield Bible, but 962 is what it is in my Schofield Bible. All right, Haggai chapter number one tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number one. Haggai chapter number one, verse number one. The word of God says in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, that the time that the Lord's house should be built. Verse 3 says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because mine house, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for letting us be here tonight. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless it to the hearts of your people. May much be accomplished this evening in our hearts and lives for eternity. We'll be sure to give you the praise. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As is true in any portion of the Word of God, the first step ought to be when we begin to read it and study it to get an understanding about who it was written to and when it was written and why it was written and what the overall substance and meaning of that passage is. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. I guess I sound like a broken record, but I'll repeat it once again that our application of Scripture should always grow out of the direct contextual application of it. In other words, what we ought to do is say, what was God saying to them And what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to me? And when you study the book of of Haggai, you'll find that it is part of a trio of what we would call post-exilic prophets. The the Old Testament uh, prophets were divided chronologically into those before the exile of the children of Israel, meaning specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. And then those that prophesied during that time, and there was some overlap between those. Jeremiah prophesied before they were taken captive and during the captivity. The book of Ezekiel seems to begin whenever the captivity takes place. And of course, the book of Daniel, so many of us are familiar with, it begins and exists, uh, the first part of it, throughout that Babylonian captivity. And then there were three minor prophets that uh, that prophesied after uh, the children of Judah returned back to the land, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And their burdens, their prophecies are largely and primarily uh, involved with the topic of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, its walls and its temple, and then of the people staying fervent in their service to the Lord. Things had changed whenever that captivity took place that would never go back. They'd never be the same again. 
And God's people had to learn in this sort of uh, brave new world, if we want to call it that, uh, what God expected of them and how they were to stay faithful to Him. When you consider the book of Haggai in particular, the immediate context of it is the rebuilding of the temple. I jotted this down. I felt it would be better if I just read it to you than trying to just quote it extemporaneously. But uh, listen to this statement concerning the book of Haggai. When the remnant of Israelites set out to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they had lofty visions of how the endeavor would unfold. Undoubtedly so. For 70 years they had been waiting for this moment. They imagined the whole of the Jewish nation marching joyfully back into land and rapidly constructing the exact temple that Solomon had built and Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Soon, however, their dreams were deflated. Instead of the whole nation uh, returning back, only a small faction returned. In fact, uh, best history tells us, and even the testimony of, of the Word of God tells us, which is the best history. Somebody say amen there. That fewer than 50,000 Jews returned. Now, that may sound a lot uh, like a lot to you or me, but consider there were still millions left back in the land of Babylon. Uh, God had instructed through Jeremiah, somewhat sarcastically, by the way, uh, in, a, in a somewhat sardonic manner, that the children of Israel would be best served if they would just give in to this captivity and settle in the land of Babylon and try to build a life there. Well, some of them really took that to heart. And whenever Cyrus gave the decree and said, you can now go back to your land and rebuild it, uh, only a small fraction of the people actually wanted to return out of out of thousands of, of priests, only about 75 returned. Out of tens of thousands of, of Levites, only just a few hundred returned. And uh, this apathy was, was disheartening, undoubtedly, to the repatriates. That's the word for somebody that goes back, resettle their land. Uh, so when they arrived, they found the land overgrown after having laid desolate for 70 years. The work was slow and arduous. The venture was beset by adversaries. And by setbacks, whenever they got back in the land, there was a group of people there uh, that wanted to have a part in, in this. But the problem was they were a mixed multitude. They were both Jew and Gentile, which, of course, was forbidden in the Old Testament law. And they were what we would call uh, throughout the rest of Scripture would come to be known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans wanted to have a part in rebuilding the temple and... Um, Whenever Ezra sees this and Zerubbabel and Joshua, they forbid it. They say, no, we don't need help from folks that are not pure in the eyes of God that have not consecrated themselves unto this work. Well, they immediately then, the Samaritans became an enemy of those Jewish repatriates. And they grew bitter at that. And they became a hostile element in trying to hinder the work of God. Eventually, the people grew complacent. In the work, and we might even say a little more about that. What took place is the Persian government uh, forbid them from finishing that work, and they felt like because the government had told them the work can't go on, that was enough of an excuse for them to abandon the work. I'm going to say that again. They felt like because the government told them that the work shouldn't go on, that that was enough of a reason to abandon the work. Uh, we find this to be true, and I, and I don't believe this is true of everybody, but sometimes uh, people find uh, besetting circumstances to be somewhat convenient in their lives. And uh, that's true of me as well. That's true of you. That's true of all of us. Uh, that's the reason God invokes this statement. He says, consider your ways. And we'll say more about it here before we're done tonight. That's really the substance of the message. But when they saw that the government said, you know, you can't build this house, you can't move forward, you can't keep going, at first, they were sort of reluctant and downtrodden about it, but pretty soon they got used to this idea of saying, you know, uh, well, the, the Persian government has said we can't be involved with it, so there it is. We can't be involved with it. We can't work. We can't labor. Uh, let's just go and build a life for ourselves. 
Finally, the people, distracted by the cares of life, abandoned the project and became preoccupied with their private lives. The prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah were given to stir the people up and call them back to the work. God commands the remnants of Israelites to consider their ways. When we read this passage that we've read tonight, it really sort of divides itself into three portions, particularly once you get into verse number three. Verse three begins really the prophecy of Haggai. It says in verse three, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? And then we find this phrase, the first usage of it there. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Then he says this, ye have sown much and bring in little, ye eat but ye have not enough, ye drink but ye are not filled with drink, ye clothe you but there is none warm, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. And here we find the phrase again, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he encourages them in how they are to arrest their spirit and will and, and bring it out of this complacency when he tells them to go up to the mountain and bring wood and to build the house. Here's what I want to preach on tonight, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you rather than spend any more time framing it. What this passage is really about is this. It's really about serving self. It's really about living for yourself. Now, the immediate context of it, of course, deals with the rebuilding of the temple, the house of the Lord, which would involve all sorts of things. It would involve your service to the Lord. It would involve your giving to the Lord, your finances. It would involve your time. And every one of those, I think, is worthy of our attention, worthy in God's Word of us considering our ways about. We ought to take regular inventory as to what we're doing for God. But when you really push away the context for a moment, get to the very core, the heartbeat of this passage, it is uh, summed up in verse number 4 where he says, Is it time for you, speaking to the people, O ye, to dwell in your sealed Houses, meaning they're paneled houses, they're adorned houses, they're beautiful houses. Is it time for you, in other words, to deal uh, or to live in lavish circumstances and this house? Well, who's this house? Whose house was it? It was God's house. This house lie waste. Really, the choice was this. Who and what are you living for? Are you living for the Lord or are you living for yourself? Are you putting your energies into the Lord's work or into your own work? Are you investing your time and your treasures into what God has for you? Or are you investing them into what you desire for yourself? It's really a chapter and it's really a prophecy about them serving themselves. They had found the government's order to be a convenient excuse to abandon their responsibility to God. And now they had decided, well, we'll just live life for us and we'll do what we please. I want to preach to you and give you three thoughts tonight that we find in this passage that might be a help to you. They were help to me when the Lord used them. In my heart, in the first two verses of our text, in verses four and five in particular, I want us to think about the folly of serving self. Can I tell you this? It's foolish to live your life for you as opposed to living it for the Lord. It's foolish to live your life for you as opposed to living it for the Lord. And then verses six and seven show us the futility of serving self. In other words, it shows us that it really brings no fruit. It really bears no pleasure. It really doesn't get you anywhere to neglect God and instead live for yourself. And then in closing, I want to say a word about the remedy for serving self. How do we get out of that? Can I tell you, we live in a society that's very self-serving. We live in a society, in fact, that has enshrined and deified self. And you'll constantly hear this is the theme that peels out of the world's bells, that you need to look out for you and you need to think about you and you need to do what's right for you and you need to do what's in your interest. And I'm here to tell you tonight that if you're living that way, you're wasting your life. 
There's a better way to live. And as God's people in particular, we ought to recognize that there is a supreme, a glorious way to live, a grand purpose to invest our lives in, and that's to be fellow laborers with the Lord. That's to live for Him and to glorify Him. So I want you to notice this with me now. First, let's think about the folly of serving self. Why is it foolish to live for yourself? Now, the world would tell you that you ought to live for yourself because it brings happiness. And yet we know that's not true. It's plain on the face of it. Some of the most unhappy people in the world are some of the people that are laid up in the lap of luxury that have all the adoration. It's not that just every few months and it seems like weeks anymore that we're hearing of some person, rich and famous, usually I don't know who they are and you probably don't either, but the, the Hollywood tells us they're rich and famous and very, very important people. And uh, we hear about these people, sports stars and, and, and athletes and, and actors and all kinds of people. We hear it at the highest realms of politics. These are people that are supposed to have everything they could want. And tragically, very often, they find that ending their life is, is more peaceful than having to live serving themselves. The world wants you to believe that the greatest thing you can do is live for yourself. To thine own self be true, the bard said. But the reality is this, it's to God to be true. That's where peace and satisfaction is found. So why is it foolish? Why does God warn us against it? Well, I think it's foolish, number one, because of what it wastes. Notice how verse 4 begins. He says, is it time for you? You ought to always pay attention when a time-oriented word is used in the Word of God, and particularly so when the word time itself is used. Time is of great significance. Time is an unusual thing. It doesn't really involve the idea of seconds or minutes or days or months. That's how we measure it. But time is the idea that we're on this moving continuum. That we cannot go back to what was a few moments ago. That we cannot rush forward into what will be. But that we are on this constant moving continuum. We are bound. We are confined. We are prisoners to this thing of time. And God looks at His people and He says, Is it time for you? Now, there's a little bit of context I want to mention to you as to this. You see, to the children of Israel, part of the reason they were satisfied to accept, boy, there might be just a little bit of preaching in what I'm about to say. Listen carefully. Part of the reason they were willing to accept with apathy uh, their their lack of responsibility to God was because of some prophecies in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are actually, we talk about the 70-year Captivity, But actually, there were two periods of 70 years that overlapped one another quite closely. There was what the Bible calls the servitude. The servitude began whenever Jehoiakim, the puppet king of, uh, of Babylon, was installed as an eight-year-old boy upon the throne of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was made a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And that 70-year period went from then all the way down to when Cyrus gave the decree for them to return and to rebuild the temple. But then there was the desolations. That's a very familiar Bible word. If you study your Bible, you'll hear the word desolations a lot in the Old and New Testament. And if you study prophecy, you'll hear the word desolations and a lot the abomination of, of desolations and so forth. The desolations began when Nebuchadnezzar actually sat Jerusalem and destroyed its temple, which was about three years after the servitude began. So here's what the Israelites were saying. They were saying the reason we can't go and build the temple is because the desolations is not over. They were literally saying it's not time yet. Here's what they were doing. I want you to listen carefully. They were using the prophecy of the Word of God as a narcotic to prevent them from living for the Lord. Now, how often do you hear people say things like this? Well, preacher, we're just living in Laodicean times. That don't mean you or I have to be a Laodicean Christian. 
Well, preacher, you just, you know, it's in the end times and, and I do believe it's in the end times. Can I tell you this? I believe Paul was in the end times too. Dispensationally speaking, if we're going, if we're going to use Bible language, uh, Paul talked about himself being in the end times as well. The end times means this. It means the church age. There was nothing left in God's dealings with Israel except for God to remove the church out of the way and to begin to deal in the tribulation period with the Jewish nation. I got news for you. We are in the end times. Now somebody's going to say, preacher, you don't think Jesus is coming back soon? We announce it every time, sometimes multiple times in a service, if we're being honest. Uh, we announce it all the time. I believe he's coming back. I believe he's coming back uh, sooner today than he was yesterday. I believe he's coming back sooner than most people think he's coming back. But I'm just telling you this, the belief in the soon coming of Jesus Christ, the belief that we are in Laodicean days is no excuse for God's people to retreat from the battle. It's no excuse for us to leave our trial uh, sitting there and not get to work. I'm telling you, we've been told to occupy till he comes. And we ought to be occupying. They were using it as an excuse to say, well, you know, we don't have to get busy building the house of the Lord because it's just not time yet. And God said this, is it time for you to dwell in sealed houses? Here's what he was getting at. They were looking at time in an anticipatory way, in a prospective sense. You know what God was saying? He was saying the grains of sand fall into the bottom of the hourglass. And he said, you know, you're wasting time that you could be spending serving me. I think that to live for self is folly because of what it wastes. It wastes time. Time that you could be spending into, in something better, in something more meaningful. I'll tell you this, all the time we spend on self is not going to amount to anything. If anything, it'll damage. It will not, it will not credit things to our account. It will not lay up treasures in heaven. I think it's foolish to serve self because of what it wastes. Number two, I think it's folly to serve self because of how it invests. He says, is it time for you? And then he says this, oh ye, to dwell in your sealed houses. Now, why is that significant? God was pointing, and I think, you know, God's a lot more sarcastic than nice people think he is. Nice people have this concept of God that just ain't, ain't in accordance with Scripture. I'm not saying God's mean. I'm just saying that we understand sarcasm because we're made in his image, and sometimes God's sarcastic in the Bible. And I think he was pointing to the fact that they had laid up so much energy, so much treasure, so much time, so much investment in these sealed houses that were soon to burn up and fade away and be nothing more. Now, let me tell you something. I don't think God is impressed with poverty anything, any more than I think God is impressed with prosperity. I don't believe that God has called us to have to uh, abandon and, and, and disavow any type of, uh, of worldly goods or, or material wealth. I don't think God is glorified by that in and of itself. And I think it can even be a point of pride and heresy as it is uh, amongst uh, a lot of Roman Catholic monks that believe that's going to get them to heaven, that they have deprived themselves of those things. You won't find a shred of that anywhere in the Word of God. But I also think this, we need to recognize that all that we build in this life is nothing but sandcastles. The waves of eternity will wash them all away. And I think serving self and living for self is foolish because you're, you're taking all of that capital, that is what, preacher, that is your time, your treasures, your talents, your testimony, all this, you know another word we could use for it? Life. Life, precious life that Christ died for, that God breathed into us, that we only get one of and investing it in nothing but things that the waves of eternity will wash away. I think it's foolish because of how it invests. But then I think there's a third reason that it's foolish. He says, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses 
And, and I don't think God's against people dwelling in, in sealed houses. I don't think God is anti-wainscoting. Amen? Somebody say amen right there. I don't think that... But here, here's the punchline. Here's the end. Here, 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 is, here is the substance. And this house lie waste. You know why I think it's foolish to serve self? Because of what it wastes. It wastes time. How it invests. It invests in temporal things. But also because of who it ignores. It ignores the God of glory that is so deserving of our lives. <laughs> There's not a one of us that would have a life, and certainly not one worth living were it not for Him. I can tell you tonight that everything in my life, everything in my life worth having has come from His hand. And the things in my life that may burden me, that may grieve me, they've all been of my making. But when I look at... And I, listen, I'm not delusional tonight. I, if I felt like God was to blame for something in my life that was wrong, I'd like to think I'd be honest enough to be willing to blame Him. But I just look at my life and take inventory and I cannot help but recognize that everything worth having, He's given to me. And everything that's a mess has been things that I have created. I'm telling you, my life is nothing without Him. So shouldn't my life be given to Him? Uh, the reality is that's why you and I have a life. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that God has constructed this, this world, this existence, this span of time, what we would call creation, the cosmos. He has designed everything to be the, under the praise of His glory. Everything in life is designed in a way for God to derive glory out of it. And that's true of your life and my life. Listen, how could we... There's a lot of things in life we may feel compelled to neglect, but how could we neglect Him who is the very source and, and, and wellspring and fountain of life. How could we neglect Him without whom we wouldn't even have a life to live? I think it's folly serving self. But then look at verse 6 with me. God begins to talk a little bit about their experiences. And He says this, Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. You know how we might sum that up? You know how we might encapsulate the spirit of it? It's to say this. What's it getting you? What's it bringing to you? What's it achieving? What is accomplishing it? There's a very familiar Bible word that I think that we could ascribe to it, and, and it would be this vanity. The vanity of serving self. The emptiness of serving self. You know what God observed about these little group of... And they, by and large, were faithful individuals. I think sometimes we look at in the Bible and it's easy with this sort of, uh, you know, schoolyard concept of justice to believe that when God deals with someone, he's picking on them. But the reality is this, God was dealing with these repatriates because they were serious about serving him and they loved him and he wanted to see the best uh, of potential out of their life. I believe these were faithful people, but God is looking at them and he's just asking them to honestly assess their life, to consider their ways, to look at how things are going. We might ask it this way. Is it working for you, God says? And he notices that there were three things in their life that never came to fruition. Notice first off that their production never came to fruition. He says you have sown much and bring in little. In other words, we might use this term, you're spinning your wheels. You're trying to, to draw out of life something meaningful, but you find that it's always beyond your grasp. Can I tell you something? You will never have anything in life that is of value and meaning to you until you give your life to Christ. Now, I didn't say you won't ever have anything in life that's not of value and meaning to someone else. I didn't say you won't ever have anything in life. I said you won't ever have anything in life of value and meaning to you until you're serving the Lord. Food will turn to ash in your mouth. 
uh, laughter will sound uh, like screeching. Nothing will be of any significance until you put God in His proper place. He says you work and you labor, you sow, you plant, you anticipate, you pray, you expect something to come of it, but at the end of the day, the crop yield is little. He says it, it, it's as hard as your work, you're not getting anywhere. You know that's part of the reason and way that people scrap and claw their way to the top. You know why it is, and we've seen this happen over the past few years with several notable people that were at the very pinnacle, talking about legends in whatever their field was that took their life. You know why? Because their crop finally came in. They finally clawed their way to the top of the mountain of their field, the mountain of their pursuit. They finally got to the very pinnacle, and they found out there was very little crop there. They couldn't cope with it. What they had built their life, they didn't know where to turn. That What they had built their life on. Turned out to be a lie and a delusion and a mirage. They get there and they look back at all the sowing that they've done. All of the many laborious hours just thinking that the, that the, that the next row would give them satisfaction. That the, the next hill would give them peace. That the next thing. But all, the more they labored, the less they brought in. And they finally came to the realization that serving self had produced nothing. God says this about his own people. He says, you've been working and laboring, but you brought in little. Their production was prevented. Number two, their satisfaction was prevented. Look what it says. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. Now, there's two ways we can look at this, and I'm going to tell you both of them, and I'm going to tell you which one I think is wrong and which one is right. One person might read this and think what he's saying is that you may eat, but the, you know there's always another meal coming after it. Isn't that funny? Don't you remember growing up and your parents would tell you you're going to ruin your appetite? And didn't you always think, well, i got another one coming right after that one. I'll be able to eat whenever that one comes. Why can't you just let me eat chocolate if I ruin this appetite? I'll, I'll have another one. I don't think that's what he's saying. When he says you drink, but you're not filled with drink, I don't think he's saying, you know, you drink, you're filled, but you're just going to get thirsty again. When he says, and this is why, because he says you clothe you, but there is none warm. You see, you could eat a meal and you'd have to eat another meal. You could drink something and you'd have to drink something more, but you put on warm clothes and that ought to warm you. And it ought to stay that way. I don't think that's what he's saying. Again, I'd remind you, he's speaking particularly to God's people and he's saying this, because you have robbed me, of satisfaction, I'm robbing you of satisfaction. And despite your greatest effort, you find that you're never satisfied with what you've got. Can I tell you that satisfaction comes from putting God first? In your life, in my life, that's how we get satisfied. There's a Bible word for it. It's the word contentment. Godliness with contentment. Paul said, that's great gain. Paul said, I have learned. Do you know that you can learn to be content? He didn't say, I labor to be content. But Ken, he said, I've learned whatsoever state I am there with to be content. Philippians chapter 4, he said, I've learned. Some of us, we're, we're laboring to be content. But that's not where contentment comes from. There's lots of people that labor and are never content. We have to learn to be content. Do you know it's possible for you to have nothing more than you have now and yet be content? Do you know it's possible for you to have less than you have now? And for you to be content. Because contentment does not come from laboring. Contentment does not come from luxury or lavishness. Contentment comes from learning to be content. How do we learn to be content? Well, Paul grew... I ain't even, this ain't even my message, but here we are. Paul learned to be content by recognizing that his circumstances were of divine making. And that at all times he had what he needed. At all times he had what he needed. 
There may be times he did not have what he desired. But he always had what he needed. You know why? Because he said, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, my Lord. He had learned this, that what God was doing, he was doing for his glory. Not for, not always for our gladness, but always for his glory. He had learned to be content. You know how? By putting what God wanted first. He said, because what God wants is more important to me than what I want, I can rest knowing that this is all for the glory of God and I can be content knowing that I'm at the end of the day getting what I want. What I want is for God to be pleased. See, when a person lives to serve self, every time that they achieve or or acquire something, there's always this panging feeling that there must be something better beyond that. But when you put God's will and God's desire and God's work as your priority in life, you can rest in this reality. I may wish there was more. I may desire for there to be something else. But I'm serving the Lord and the Lord's in control of it. And if He wanted me to have more, I'd have more. If He wanted things to be different, they'd be different. So I can just learn to be content knowing He's pleased. Even if I'm not pleased. You learn to be content. Their satisfaction was prevented. And then notice this. He says, and he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Their retention was prevented. They couldn't save anything. There was always something coming along the pike. You know, I found this to be true in my life. I ain't really been preaching on tithing, and I'm really still not preaching on tithing, but let me preach on tithing for just a second. Can I do that? Can I preach to you about my experiences with tithing? I'm not saying every time something breaks in your house is because you're disobeying God. But I found this to be true. Every time I disobey God, stuff starts breaking. I'm not saying if your car broke down, it's because you're disobedient to the Lord. I ain't even talking about you. Why do you think I'm, you're paranoid? I ain't even talking about you. I'm talking about me. I don't know how it is with you, but I know with me that in my life, every time I try to rob God, God puts a big old hole in that bag. I remember hearing a man say one time, you will pay your tithes. You'll either pay it to the local church or you'll pay it to the mechanic. And you'll pay it to the appliance repair man. And you'll pay it to the doctor. And you'll pay it to all these different... But you will pay your tithes. The fact is, when we're serving self, we find that our retention is impeded. God makes sure we never get ahead. It's not because God's spiteful. It's because God is sovereign. And He knows that the happiest we'll be in life is when we're serving Him and not serving self. So we see the futility of serving self. And then finally, and I'm going to say a word about this and be done tonight. If you pray extra hard, we might be done by eight. God God, turned the sun back one time before. He can do it again if he wants to. Look at verse number 8 with me. I want you to see the remedy for serving self. Now, how do we get out of it? We're in the same situation they were in. So many of us, we've lived for self so long, we don't even know how to change what we're doing. We don't even know how to get out of it. How do we get out of it? Well, God gave them proper instruction, and he gives it to us as well. Look at verse 8. He says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Three things that he says, and we'll move past that phrase, but the first is found in that phrase. It requires a proper participation. Can I tell you that there is no substitute for action? There's no substitute for action. We can meditate on a problem day in and day out. We can pray about it from now uh, till kingdom come. But sometimes what it requires is that we go up to the mountain, bring wood, and build the house. In other words, God was saying this, your first step is to take a step. Your first action is to take action. 
You've got to remedy what you know you need to remedy. We oftentimes allow, I call it analysis paralysis. We spend time speculating a problem to death instead of taking the first actionable step that lays before us. Can I tell you something I've learned? Ten years of pastoring, and when you're pastoring, you're, you're kind of, don't take this the wrong way, but you're kind of your own boss. I know the Lord's your boss. I know you're there to serve the people. I'm not dismissing that. But nobody's really looking over your shoulder. Uh, you don't find out you're doing a bad job until half the church leaves. That's when you find out you're doing a bad job. And everybody, and some people are lying about you and rumors going, that's how you find out. Nobody's going to stand looking over your shoulder and say, hey, do better about this. And as such, you kind of have to be a self-starter. Can I tell you something I've learned in that environment? The greatest thing that you can do when tackling a task is to break it down into manageable. And by the way, this ain't no big divine secret, right? Even secular people will tell you this. This ain't no big divine secret. This ain't heavenly wisdom, all right? I didn't get this from the book of Proverbs. It's just practical. Break it down into actionable, manageable steps. Make a list and start with what you can do. We oftentimes spend all of our time worrying about and praying about things we ain't even got to yet and neglecting the things, Brother Ken, that are right in front of us. You know what God says, the remedy for serving self? Step number one, quit serving self. Now, I know that sounds simplistic. I know it even maybe sounds rude. But what God is saying here is this. Take the action you know to take. If there's something in your life where God is not preeminent, ask His forgiveness of it, repent of it, and get that thing situated in your life. See, the reality is it should not be a challenge to start serving the Lord. The challenge should be staying steadfast in serving the Lord. Very often we say, well, preacher, I don't even know how to get my life right. But that's not true. We do know how to get our life right. What we really mean is, preacher, I'm afraid I can't stay the course. I'm afraid I can't stay faithful. I'm afraid temptation's going to come. Listen, temptation is going to come. You are going to have to learn how to be consistent. But the first step is go up to the mountain, bring the wood and build the house. Do what you know to do. There's some area of your life that's not in line with God's word. Ask His forgiveness of it. Repent of it. And then if there's some some tangible, some some physical action that must be taken in your life, if there's something you've allowed in your house that needs to be thrown in the garbage, uh, go home, throw it in the garbage. If there's something uh, as far as the organization of your time and scheduling your time to make God a priority, then sit down, pen and paper, and schedule Him and make Him a priority. I'm saying the first thing is proper participation. The first thing is to take action. Then notice number two. He says this, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Then what does he say? He says, I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. We need a proper priority. You notice what he doesn't say anything about? He doesn't say, and I'll sew up that hole that's in the bath. He doesn't say, I'll make the food taste better and I'll make the drink more satisfying. He doesn't say, I'll make those clothes keep you warm. He doesn't say anything about that. You know why? Not because he did not intend on blessing them. He did intend on blessing them. And later on in the prophecy of Haggai, he gives certain promises of blessing to his people. But because for us, the priority should not be, how do I get out of the mess I've created for myself? The priority ought to be, how can I please the Lord? How can I make him happy? You see, you know what got us into this mess? And I don't know who the Holy Ghost is talking to right now, but can it just, can me and you and the Holy Ghost talk about it, whoever you are, for a second? And can I just say this? You know what got us into this mess? Uh, was putting self first. You know what will get us out of that mess? Put Christ first. It's very simple. We have to have a proper priority. God doesn't say, I'm going to fix all these things that you've done broken. He says this, if you'll do what I ask, then I'll be pleased. And guess what? I'll receive glory by you doing not to say God would not go beyond and remedy some of those things. And he would, and he did, and he does. 
But the first step ought to be to get our priorities straight. What ought to matter in our life is not serving our interests, but serving God's interests, putting Him on the throne of our life, heart, and priorities. And then look at verse 9. And I think this is important. We talk about that perspective, or excuse me, we talk about that consistency. It's going to require a perspective. Look at verse 9. He says, You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, God said, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Now again, if, if you want, if, if the Holy Ghost is dealing with you about that as it relates to financial whatever, then that's between you, you and the Lord. But I'm, I, I think that the, the more salient, the more substantive point there is this. You chose you over me. You chose you over me. I'm, I'm talking God speaking. God saying you chose you over me. And because of that, neither of us are satisfied. The Lord says, I'm not satisfied. I'm not pleased. But you aren't either. Uh, let's flip that thing around. You choose me over you, God says, and you'll find we'll both be satisfied. He's saying this. You have to have a proper perspective. What helps us stay the course? What helps us stay the course? Uh, we're raising children now, or they're raising us. I've not figured it out yet, but one of the things we're endeavoring to do is instill in them certain principles. And we do that through through discipline. We do that through through positive things and rewards and what we're trying to do is to get them to understand a few real, real, real basic principles. Can I sum them up for you? Mom and dad love you and want what's best for you. There are consequences to your actions. Don't do stupid things. God loves you. God loves you more than mom and dad love you. It takes work to have things in life. There's a few basic principles that we're trying to drive home. You know why? Because we understand we don't have to teach them about every single little thing. If we can convince them and grow them, and, and I'm going to use this word, my father-in-law used to use it all the time, indoctrinate them. He used to say, the world's trying to brainwash you. You need to be brainwashed, just not with the world's brainwashing, with God's brainwashing. He said, that's what we're trying to do. He, he was our Bible teacher, and he'd say, I'm trying to indoctrinate you. I'm trying to put doctrine into your life. We're trying to indoctrinate them and induct them into certain principles and ideals. Because we understand that if we can, if we can make truth their perspective, then that will guide so many other elements of life. And that's what God's doing here. He's saying, you want to stay the course? Get it through your head that if you'll put me first, that's where peace, pleasure, and prosperity, happiness, joy, contentment, that's where it comes from. You know what helps us stay the course? Once we recognize and understand that immutable truth and gain that perspective in life that God always needs to be first, I promise you this, if you will put God first, then in the terms that we're talking about tonight, having a life that is enjoyable, having a life that is what we might call successful, if you'll put God first, you'll never be last. You'll find that God will take up your portion. God will prosper your way as He sees fit and in a way that brings Him glory and brings Him honor if you'll just put Him first in your life. He says, consider your ways. I hope we've done that tonight. And I'll tell you this, there's, there's one more step left. And that's dealing with the Lord. I hope you've considered your ways. Now's your opportunity to deal with the Lord about those ways you have considered. And if there's some area of your life he's not been first, won't you put him first tonight and let him have his will and way. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I've preached my sermon. I'm not going to preach it again in the invitation. I'm just going to ask you if the Lord's dealt with your heart, won't you respond obediently to him tonight? He didn't deal with you for no reason. Uh, he didn't deal with you uh, to no effect or to no purpose. He's got a plan in your life and he dealt with you because, frankly, you and I, we need to be dealt with. 
Why don't you respond to that dealing this evening? Father, bless this invitation. May the Lord Jesus be glorified. May your people respond obediently. We ask it in Christ's precious name.